Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. We're recording this show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen and was never ceded, and that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Rose Ward. I'm the host of the show, and uh, Liam Ward is the producer of the show. Mm-hmm. And you may have noticed that um, there's been a little bit of an extra gap between episodes because me and Liam have been busy <laughs> with a national campaign. Liam, do you want to say something about that just quickly before we get into this? Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we gave if in the last the last episode we did actually was probably a, a you know uh, telling a taste of things to come. Uh, we've been Ros and I are in the same union, the National Tertiary Education Union, and uh, the sector we work in has been hit uh, by um, you know the economic impact of the of the pandemic and the crisis and uh, the question about well who pays then for the who pays for this uh, was posed starkly and um, in the face of uh, you know, yeah, this downturn in revenue or this predicted downturn in revenue, our union's own national leadership uh, ran to the bosses, uh, you know, cap in hand with a bloody disgusting uh, uh, schedule of cuts to wages uh, and attacks on our, our working conditions. Uh, so we've been involved in organising a mass rank and file rebellion in the union. Uh, we did the numbers recently and thousands of people have been uh, involved in um, the activity that we've organised in the last few weeks, so it's been a whirlwind. And uh, uh, we, one of the, mo- I think, all modesty aside, one of the most important and significant uh, rank and file rebellions we've seen in our union movement broadly for many, many years. Yep, and I learned how to make a website. So um, ntufightback.site is the sort of main campaign website, and we're also on Facebook at NTU Fightback as well. If people want to check out some more on that. Um, and yeah, our previous episode was sort of an introduction and I think we'll probably come back and do another one mm-hmm. sort of to see where we're at in the next couple of weeks. But today um, we have some really big and important things to talk about, like probably one of the most important things that's happening in, that has happened in the world of resistance and rebellion and as socialists, one of the most exciting things that's happened in a really long time and that is the continued mass uprising in the United States. And we have two really special guests um, on the show, Gavin Stanbrook and Vanil Kumar, and um, they can say a bit about themselves, but I really just want to get straight into this. So, Vanil, welcome to the show. Tell us, in your words, a sort of summary of what's been happening. I'm sure people have been following, but just um, the scale of it and sort of how it compares to things that have happened before. Yeah, thanks very much, Roz. Um, Yeah, I think what's going on is one of those incredible moments in history that you kind of learn about in the history textbooks, but you just kind of never imagine might happen in your lifetime. And, you know, the media, it's just been wall-to-wall coverage by the international press about what's been going on. And it's not just the riots in Minneapolis, and it's not just kind of like little protests here and there. But what we're witnessing right now is a genuine uprising of masses of people throughout the United States um, who are just saying enough is enough. Um, There is just a righteous anger that has uh, bubbled to the surface and just erupted uh, all across the United States. And uh, this is uh, this was sparked by the 
brutal and horrific murder of uh, a man named George Floyd in uh, the city of Minneapolis on the 25th of May. But I think it's definitely worth saying that what is happening right now is uh, about the murder of George Floyd, but it is also about much more than that. It is also about the murder of Breonna Taylor. It is about the murder of uh, Ahmoud Arbery. It is about the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin and uh, Michael Brown and the murder of uh, Freddie Gray, uh, of Tamir Rice, of Sandra Bland. This is about you know, going all the way back to the 1960s, the murder of James Powell, and before that, the murder of Emmett Till that many people would know about. It's about the four, over 400 years of built-up oppression and violence against African-American people, whether it's the constant uh, harassment and brutality of the police force, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's like mass immiseration and poverty. Um, this one horrific murder has been the catalyst for people um, coming out and rejecting all of it. And I think that righteous anger that people have expressed in the protests and the the mass rallies, um, all of it has had a significant impact um, in the United States and internationally, because the racist crimes of the U.S. state, which are often so, um, you know, hurriedly swept under the carpet by the mainstream media and by politicians on both sides of the aisle, are now just plain for everyone to see. It's because of these protests and because of these riots that people all over the world today know the name of George Floyd and know what happened to him. They know uh, that... Uh, you know, what is going on right now to African-American people in the United States is truly horrific. And I think much more than that, people know that this is a state of affairs that cannot be allowed to continue, that society cannot just go back to the normality that is characterized by the indiscriminate uh, taking of black lives. And I think people understand now that, um, yeah, things, uh, people have to take uh, action into their own hands. And so what we're seeing is incredible scenes all across the United States of hundreds of thousands of people, incredible scenes of multiracial solidarity. It's not just African-American people. They're joined by um, scores and scores of white protesters, of Latino uh, protesters, of people from the Asian community and the Muslim community, LGBTI activists, men, women, children, um, everyone who has ever felt downtrodden, oppressed, and some sympathy for those who are, um, are taking action into their own hands. And... Um, yeah, I have so much more to say. Uh, I'm, I don't know whether you want me to go on or whether we should. Yeah, I mean, we can unpack some of that a bit, I think. Mm. Um, but maybe I'll just get Gavin to just say something because, I mean, clearly you've experienced racism in Australia as an Indigenous activist and your family, um, but at the same time thinking about racism in America, um, the size of the black population there, the history of slavery and how this fits in the crisis caused by the um, COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, this is about George Floyd, but it's also about much more than that. Can you talk about some of those factors as well? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's clear to say that, and it's important to say that, you know, the struggles for black rights and against violence towards the black community in the United States have been ongoing basically since, you know, the establishment of the US capitalism. The entire economy was based on slavery um, for, for a certain period of time. So the, the uh, racism of US capitalism runs deep into the system. And that impacts the, the lives of, you know, black people and people of colour and migrant communities in many different ways. 
Uh, and you're totally right, Rose. What we're seeing now is something that's completely, I think, transformed in terms of the level of struggle because the context in which they're resisting is completely um, different and, and intensified. And I think we have, to, we have to say from the outset that the, the experience of the black community under normalcy in, in the United States is appalling. You know, education is all but non-existent in terms of funding in black communities. You know, the Chicago Teachers Union came out with a statement recently in solidarity with the protest movement currently taking place. Uh, and they went through how, you know, their students in Chicago uh, district, which is um, over 80% of the students are black, uh, just massively underfunded. Entire communities are just left destitute. And we talk about housing, you know. Uh, there was an excellent article published in Red Flag by Jas Jasmine Duff recently, which went through the experience of black communities in New York in response to COVID. You know, they, their houses there are over 50 to 60 years old. The complexes that they're living in have walls that are falling apart. You know, the virus is just sweeping through these communities. Um, and then you have healthcare. Healthcare is non-existent in the United States. We have to be clear about that. If you get COVID today and you're black, you're probably going to die from it. That that's the reality for black people in the United States and for the working class generally. And so, add COVID into the mix. It, it it's a tinderbox. It is a tinderbox waiting to explode. You think about the way in which COVID has disproportionately impacted the black community. So in New York, the black community is 22% of the population. But the, the uh, fatalities, they make up 28% of the fatalities in that state. In Chicago, they make up 30% of the population, whereas they make up 70% of the uh, fatalities mm. from COVID. And in the state of Louisiana, they make up 32% of the population, whereas they make up 70% of the fatalities in that state. So the way in which COVID is massively Uh, impacting the black community and the working class generally is is quite significant and I think um, really adds fuel to the fire of why this struggle is so explosive. Because you're right, every eight hours a black man is murdered by the cops. And that is an experience that, you know, I, I, being Aboriginal and dealing with black destiny in custody in this country is something that is radicalizing. Now imagine that happening every day Uh, 365 days a year for the last 250 years. This is the reality for black people. And so when the, the murder of George Floyd is publicized in such a way where you have a copper, a police officer kneeling down on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds where he screams out for his deceased mother to come and help him, that is a moment where people realize that everything has to change. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Our across the world. This morning, um, I think they made a new announcement. Uh, well, they announced updated figures for unemployment in the US. So previously they said 40 million. I think they added an extra one and a half million today or something. So this is like incredible proportion of the population, disproportionately people of colour, who are unemployed. And so, you know, when there's these appeals to people to get off the streets, like one of our um, comrades, socialist activists in the US who's been reporting quite a lot um, about what's been happening that is very different to what the news have been reporting, we should sort of talk a bit about that, but um, said that, you know, 
the the laughable kind of get off the streets and get back to work when there's literally no work and people have all just become unemployed and it's just a joke to say go back to work so for these protesters like it just starts to become similar to the protesters in Hong Kong like protest or defeat that that's the two options you know fight on your um, feet or just die on your knees and so I mean in America, of all places, in the heart of capitalism, this is the situation that we're now in. And the solidarity we've seen around the world has also been a massive feature. So I don't know, Vanilla, you could say a bit about that. And just to make sure people <laughs> realise that this is much bigger than the original Black Lives Matter movement as well in terms of scale and reach, breadth and depth, and the international ramifications as well. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a figure that got put out the other day saying that the amount uh, of cities in which there are protests now has reached over 350. And just for context, the last kind of like major um, outbreak of riots across the United States happened after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, where there were only 110 cities that erupted. We now have protests in over 50 states. And yes, uh, yeah, definitely it's spread uh, internationally. You can see scenes of tens of thousands of people in London um, in, uh, you know, a place where just in 2011 there were the London riots against the murder of Mark Duggan, a black man who was killed by the police there. Um, so you know, racism, uh, kind of uh, as uh, you know, as a as a part of capitalism, has uh, manifested all over the world. You can see it in Brazil, where people are protesting against the authoritarian Bolsonaro government and against the indiscriminate police killings and murders of uh, uh, of black people in Brazil um, and indigenous people there as well. Um, you can see it in Berlin. You can see it in uh, Otoroa. You can see it all over the world. And I think uh, the reason for that is quite clear um, that like the same kind of injustices and the same brutalities that people can see playing out on the streets of the United States um, exist everywhere in the world. And people can see what's going on in the United States and recognize, well, that struggle going on over there. That's my struggle as well. That's our struggle. And actually, if that struggle goes forward, um, it is a, it is a step forward for all of our struggles. And if it's crushed, it is a, a defeat for all of our struggles. And I think that's right now um, what's uh, the other part and the other side of what's going on in the United States, which is the establishment and the state and the government are completely terrified of what is going on. Not just the scale of the protests, but the solidarity, um, the self-organization, the tenacity and the perseverance of it all. Um, you know, Trump has invoked the Insurrection Act um, just uh, in the past couple of hours. He's released a statement saying all these protesters are terrorists. Um, you know, they're getting the army on the streets, they're sent in the police, not uh, not just to brutalize the protesters, but to brutalize journalists so that news of this can't get out, to brutalize um, the medics who have volunteered their time and effort to, to treat people in the tents, uh, because they have no other way of, like, trying to contain this now. Um, they, um, you know, they tried uh, getting people to go back and telling them to, to just go home and vote and to just, you know, trust in the electoral process, but People are rightfully laughing at that because who are you going to vote for? The Democratic Party, the party of slavery, or Joe Biden, the person who says that you should like shoot protesters in the knees? Um, I think the entire political process has been completely delegitimized, as well as the idea that like, oh, all we need to do is like get more black faces in high places, to use the words of uh, Dr. Cornell West. Well, you've had black mayors, you've had black governors, you've had black police chiefs, you've had a black president. And clearly, even if you can get to the heights of the presidency, that doesn't make life better for African-Americans. So 
There's uh, a, a battle now going out, going on right now in the United States to try and contain the protests because uh, the reality is actually the protests are reaping results. Like the all four police officers have now been charged uh, with various degrees of murder um, for George Floyd's uh, killing. And also you can see like the mayor of Los Angeles has come out and said, we're now going to strip money out of the police budget and put it into black communities. Um, Lego has come out and said that like they're telling the international retailers not to promote the police sets um, as part of their product range. So incredible things you wouldn't imagine happening even a month ago are now taking place. And that is the power of protest. That is what socialists talk about all the time as what changes the world. Mm. And we've seen, I mean, it's entirely predictable, the sort of two sides of coercion and consent that the ruling class uh, rely on. And Trump is very much in fa- a big fan of coercion, which basically means beat the shit out of people and punish them and do whatever you can to break people's will to continue. On the other hand, the Democrats have always been a big fan of um, trying to get consent for what they're trying to do, which is by saying, you know, channel your your righteous rage and energy into the system. Don't stand outside shouting. Come inside and have your say, you know, where the power is. You've also seen um, the incredible and laughable kind of copaganda, I call it, the kind of police propaganda of them, you know, here's a photo of some cops on their knees and like one guy somewhere talking nicely to some black people, (laughs) like as if this is going to then suddenly change people's mind about um, the police. And I'm sure again, Gavin, you've experienced some of those same kind of pressures and arguments about, you know, when Indigenous people get angry, why don't they try to, win elections or, you know, all of that kind of crap. Like, how do you respond to that? I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but I reckon it's worth saying a few of those things. Yeah. I mean, as Vinil said, uh, Joe shoot them in the leg Biden. Uh, if he's elected, you're not get, you know, black deaths are not going to stop. The murder of black people in the streets is absolutely just not going to stop. The, the question of challenging oppression and racism under capitalism cannot be alleviated i think through the electoral system and it cannot be fundamentally overthrown through the system because the system relies on racism in order to exist and so if you actually want to challenge it we have to look to struggles that are taking place like you know minneapolis like the incredible struggle there and and when it comes to these arguments you know it's it's quite clear what the Democrats are doing. The Democrats want to run capitalism. They are the A-team for US capitalism. They've launched more wars than the Republicans. They are the party for slavery. Uh, there's, I think there's enough evidence out there to, to point to where the Democrats stand on this issue. And, and actually, the fact that they're responding to it in a way which is two-sided, it's like, oh, we, you know, we love protests. We love it. Incredible. Keep going. Get, get, a, get a cop on the, on the front line and hug, hug a protest. I love it. Isn't it great? And then on the other hand, it, there's obviously the, the arguments where they're attacking it of like, well, looting is not how you, you know, push your, your cause or this is, this is not how you get your message across. And I think that speaks to how powerful this struggle is. It's really shaken up the capitalist class. It's really shaken up politics in the United States. Trump is doubling down because he knows that he needs a hardened base in order to win the next elections. And the Democrats need a stable society in order to, you know, continue the profit 
profiteering of the capitalist class in the United States. You know, these protests have literally shut down the entire country, 350 protests across the state. It's incredible. And in response to these arguments, I think we have to be clear that it's complete bullshit. They don't actually care about the protests. They don't care that George Floyd was murdered. And they don't care that the cops are going to continue to murder black people continuously in the future. What they care about is that their system, US capitalism, the most powerful you know, capitalist state in human history, is currently under serious threat. The, the black movement in the United States has dri driven a wedge straight into the heart of, of the US um, capitalist system. And so the Democrats are responding to it in, in any way that they can to try and shut them up, really. Well, yeah, I think it's just quickly, like, it's a real kind of rebuke to the argument that, like, the only way we can fight Donald Trump is at the ballot box. Like, I think the protesters in Minneapolis and the protesters um, all across the country have shown that you can fight the system without having to resort to putting your trust in some politician that's going to um, that's gonna sell you out. And I think that's probably one of the most positive experiences coming out of this, that, like, people have learned, well, we don't have to sit by and wait, we can do things ourselves. Yeah. That's definitely true. And I think people have sort of been feeling like, why aren't there more protests against Trump? But protests don't just happen unless somebody actually gets some people together and goes out on the streets. And, you know, there's a spark. We talk about that as socialists a lot. Like there has to, you know, we, we don't know the possibilities of struggle until something sparks it off. And that has happened now, finally, under the Trump regime. Um, and we're seeing the consequences of that continue to unfold. I will just say we're recording this on the afternoon of Friday the 5th of June in Australia, so things may have changed by the time you listen to this podcast in case, uh, yeah, in case they have, and hopefully they've moved in an even more positive direction. Let's take on the question of the cops um, just quickly then because it's another in kind of amazing feature of the response to these protests that so many people who you would not now, you would never have thought would be saying, actually, let's rethink the whole way that the police force works. Maybe we should defund it. Hold on a second. Why are police budgets in America like billions and billions of dollars for these people to go out and kill people? And so you've got celebrities, you know, all these Instagram celebrities and people saying, yeah, let's end the police. I mean, that's something we believe in as socialists and always have. But let's talk about why we think that as socialists as well and we support that demand. Um, Vanille. Yeah, well, I think um, when things are quiet in the world, um, you know, the, like the, the veil of how capitalism operates uh, is kind of uh, hard to see through. But I think in moments like these, when there's serious social struggle going on, all the bullshit kind of falls away. And I think the scenes of police brutality that we've seen um, in the United States um, uh, in response to the protests is not some aberration of the police force. This is what the police actually are as an institution and has and have always been. Like the police force, uh, the police forces in most of the um, advanced capitalist countries around the world were founded in the early 1800s. And, you know, uh, people know that uh, in the United States, they came out of the slave patrols um, and they were like these disparate kind of like small scale security forces that existed um, in different forms all across the country. But really, it's kind of with the rise of the industrial cities in places like London, but also in the United States and um, in Boston and in New York, 
that it became quite clear that you've got thousands upon thousands of working class people um, who are like being crammed into these cities, who are angry, who, um, you know, don't like being forced to work in these squalid conditions and who for the first time have some real social power. They can collectively organize, they can protest, they can go on strike and shut things down. And so quickly the capitalist class in these countries start to realize, well, we can't just contain the situation with our small scale night watch patrols and slave patrols and things like that. We need a professionalized, well-funded, well-trained discipline and loyal force that can basically be there when we need them in order to basically put ordinary people back in their place. And that's what the police were about. That's why there was a mass funding and development of the police uh, force um, in states all across the United States um, towards the end of the 19th century. Um, And the police have loyally played uh, that role for them. Um, They're a tool of the capitalist class. They're there to make sure that a tiny minority that makes its wealth out of exploiting the rest of us um, can maintain their power uh, by, you know, criminalizing the poor and where necessary in situations of struggle, violently repressing them. So the police have never been on our side, no matter how many um, you know, presentations they give in school classrooms to say cops are tops and the cops are your mates. Well, actually, the rea- the reality is what we're seeing right now across the United States. That's what the police are. They're a repressive institution. We don't need them. In fact, they keep in place the entire social system that causes poverty, that causes violence, that causes alienation, um, that causes wars, that causes racism. And so in a world without them, I think we could, and in a world where wealth is democratically controlled and organized, we could find answers to social problems that don't resort to brutalizing people and throwing them in cages. The way of the revolution So, I mean, there's obviously going to be, and there are already um, challenges for this movement as it tries to uh, continue and formulate demands or, you know, find targets and so on and is continually getting smashed by the cops. I mean, really, basically, when the Australian news channels just focus on sort of um, riots happening and so on, we should be very clear that at this point they're talking about police riots. They're talking about um, when people are just out on the streets at night continuing to protest peacefully, being attacked now by the cops. That's the only riots that are happening. Um, And it was a riot that sparked these mass protests, but it's, um, you know, a mass peaceful protest, Um, absolutely. Uh, So, Gavin, do we want to talk about um, some protests that are coming up here in Australia as well? And I guess... uh, the solidarity that people have been um, spontaneously, I think, wanting to uh, offer to the movement. Um, I know in in Melbourne we've had people who have never tried to call a protest before who have said, like, let's do it, let's go have a Black Lives Matter protest here. And there have been some kind of debates and discussions about sort of who has the right to call a protest. Um, What do you think about some of that? that's been happening yeah definitely i think um just firstly like i i i think the incredible solidarity that we've been seeing around the world uh is definitely has expressed itself here in australia and although we haven't had the opportunity yet to see what that looks like uh we had a protest here in sydney on tuesday 
and it was just incredible overwhelmingly young um it was called within a couple of days there were uh, upwards of two to three thousand people at that protest uh and from all accounts it was lively young um and very very vibrant and so there's obviously large amounts of people here who want to get on the streets and stand in solidarity with what's taking place in the united states and i think that that we have to give credit to the to the to the struggle and the, the depth of resistance that's that's taking place in the uprising in the United States in really being, you know, planting a flag in the sand for oppressed people the world over as a, you know, as a point of resistance. Um, but as we know, when struggles break out, it throws into question all of the kind of traditional norms and everything that we accept about um, activism and about politics and about the ideas that we hold in our heads. And it really forces us to challenge those. And yeah, definitely. One of the things that's um, that's come up has has been the, the question around organising protests and about um, when and who and how these things should be set up. My um, one of the the ways that I like to look at it, and the, one of the political perspectives that I like to adhere to, is is the politics of solidarity, the politics of you know trade union legends like Uncle Chicka Dixon or Kevin Cook. Or you know you know radicals of of the struggles before them, you know the the struggles of uh, Vincent Lingari and the Wave Hill Walk Off, or or the or the uh, the Pilbara Strike of 1936. You know these incredible struggles that were able to really draw out the question of solidarity, the quest, the idea that the way in which we approach struggle together is we conceive of oppression as being fundamentally interconnected. The struggle against racism is fundamentally tied in, into the struggle against all forms of oppression because capitalism as a system fundamentally relies on the tapestry of oppression in order to maintain their unequal and oppressive system. You can't exploit billions of working class people in the way that the capitalist class do unless you have intertwined, in, like deep-rooted oppressions that keep working class people divided, that keep us at each other's throats. And so the politics of solidarity is about acknowledging that, recognising that all of our oppressions are interconnected and that actually when we stand together, when we fight on an equal basis and come together, we can actually create something incredible. And I think that's what we're seeing in the United States, that solidarity of young people in their hundreds around the United States setting up rallies, you know, off of one tweet. There was a story of one young woman in the US who set up a rally of 700 people off of one tweet. You know, she didn't, it wasn't like she was connected into all of these networks in order for this to happen. In many cases, a lot of these people who are organising this protest are new to the movement. And I think it's, it's, it's our responsibility as the traditional activists on the scene to welcome those people and to create a space for them that we can talk about the politics of solidarity and, and actually move forward. Um, mm -hmm. on, on a basis that I think empowers all of our movements collectively. Yeah. And, I mean, and you, and you can see that in the UK protests as well, like massive multiracial protests with heaps of young people and new people who've never spoken at a rally before or, you know, been active and not part of any established organisations and stuff like that. And as socialists, really, I mean, our attitude is always to support the struggles of the oppressed however they emerge and that includes you know every time 
refugees uh, go uh, take action against their appalling treatment in Australia, whether that is, you know, um, standing on a rooftop or burning down a fucking concentration camp here, we stand on the side of the oppressed and that whoever um, wants to stand with us should stand with us. So, um, Vanille, I wonder if you could just talk, and we should wrap this up fairly soon, about the kind of idea that as socialists we really only care about the class struggle and that racism or questions of oppression might just be kind of like secondary to that or, you know, we can't relate to them or whatever. Um, I know you've written and spoken a lot about this kind of stuff, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, well, the starting point has to be um, to understand, as Gavin said, that like um, oppression serves a purpose under capitalism and it is deeply tied to capitalism and it is created by capitalism. And oppression is about the ruling class finding ways to rule over the majority in society, keep us down and keep us disempowered. And if you have that starting point of uh, the function that oppression plays under capitalism and the uh, function that racism plays under capitalism, you have to recognize that it is a crucial part of ruling class power and how the ruling class uh, keeps us down. And that means that it has to be equally important for us to smash racism. It has to be equally important for us to smash these tools of oppression uh, that weaken our movement, really, because like... Um, that's the power of like the working class and that's the power of mass movements is in unity and in our ability to struggle together. And if we refuse to struggle together because, you know, we're divided by racism or we're divided by sexism or we're divided by homophobia, transphobia, whatever form of oppression it is, it weakens our movement. It weakens our ability to exercise our collective strength against the ruling class to even press for our immediate demands, let alone win a revolution that can tear down the entire system. So if you're a socialist, you absolutely need to be against racism because you are for the working class taking power in society and you're against everything that disempowers the working class. And I think, you know, that means that um, in the here and now, every single battle against racism is one that we have to take up um, seriously. It doesn't uh, matter, um, you know, uh, which battle it is. Um, Socialists have to side with the oppressed in fighting these forms of oppression. Um, so whether it's, you know, standing uh, with Indigenous people against deaths in custody, whether it's um, standing with refugees demanding their freedom, whether it's st standing against the demonization of the African community in Victoria, um, you know, we have to oppose every form of racism and fight for every um, gain and every concession we can. But at the same time, we have to have a, a, a bigger picture because, you know, there have been monumental struggles against racism throughout the history of capitalism. The civil rights movement um, that, you know, so many people have been talking about in the past weeks was one of those monumental struggles that basically changed the landscape um, of uh, American and global politics in profound ways. But it was uh, a struggle that stopped short of overthrowing the system of capitalism. And so long as the 1% is still in power so long as um, you know they um, yeah they still run society. They will need things like racism to divide us and to maintain control. They will need things like the police to brutally reinforce their rule. And so, if we want a world that is free of racism, free of police brutality, we have to destroy and overthrow the underlying system that creates these injustices in the first place. Um, and that uh, is, yeah, that is going to require working class revolution. That is going to require socialism, a society, yeah, where we get to call the shots about what happens with the wealth we produce, not the people at the top. Those people should have no power. And I think that's going to be the, the key to, to solving these problems. Mm. Um, Gavin, do you want to add anything on onto that? 
Ah, oh, I thought vanilla. <laughs> that was pretty good. I mean, just to add, uh, I guess if we're wrapping up, um, what next? Yep, yep. Yeah. I think um, we've got a protest coming up tomorrow. And the incredible thing is that in classic uh, authoritarian fashion, the Australian, uh, sorry, the New South Wales state government and the police have taken the organisers to Supreme Court to try and stop the rally. The purveyors of racist violence in this state, the police and the courts that oversee the countless black deaths in custody that go uh, without justice are trying to stop a protest that challenges their authority and the racism and the, the violence that they perpetuate. So it's clear that the state is uh, getting a bit uh, antsy and a bit frustrated about the fact that ordinary working class people want to challenge racism. And so we've got a fight to wage here. We've got the campaign against black deaths in custody that is ongoing and um, we've got the battles that are going to continue to come up as you know, as the police and as the government try to undermine our rights uh, during this current crisis. Um, so, yeah, I definitely look forward to um, joining you guys on the front lines uh, in that struggle. Yeah, the same situation in Victoria with Dan Andrews, you know, supposedly socialist bloody Premier of Victoria yet again. Um, after having armed the police with new militant riot gear and given them even more money than any Liberal government have ever given them before, has basically launched a media campaign today to try to put people off protesting and attacking the protesters, convicting all sorts of bullshit about what people are planning to do and um, basically setting the scene for the police um, to attack the protest. But um, from what I can see, people are very, very determined to continue to take to the streets and I'm sure that uh, they, well, they definitely will in Melbourne, they will in Sydney, and there's protests happening around the country. So if you um, look at the uh, link, the links in the description to this podcast, you'll be able to find your local rally as well to join in that struggle. And hopefully we can have you both back um, in the future to talk about how this has unfolded, um, what the future directions for this amazing movement are internationally, because um, it is really making history <laughs> yeah so thanks gavin thanks vanille mm. and thanks liam pleasure uh, you're listening to red flag radio we have a world to win <laughs>